Joining me today on the Culture Podcast is critically acclaimed theatre company writer, producer and director, Neil Darcy-Jones. Neil, welcome. Thanks, Will. How are you? Very good. Very good. Now, your job sounds really fun. What, what yes. exactly is it? What exactly is it that you do? Well, I, I pretty much do everything. It's interesting because um, on, on the podcast, in front of me on my screen, I've got a job title slash brand TBC, which is, which, is, is, which is just about right, to be honest with you. Um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of the jobs that I've done and the jobs that I'm doing, certainly in terms of the theatre, I'm predominantly a theatre producer, so I make theatre. I put sort of shows and productions on. But I've also directed and I also write as well. I've got a lovely sort of um, every year uh, a very um, a local actor, uh, actor, writer and director called Patrick Marlowe. We do a ghost story show, which, we're, um, which we uh, tour around East Anglia. And I write one of the stories and Patrick writes one of the other stories. Um, and so, yeah, so I, so I do a bit of writing, do a bit of directing, but I'm mainly theatre producing. That's kind of sort of, that's where my, uh, that's where my heart lies, I suspect. Yeah. Sounds brilliant. And do you, do you link up those shows with Halloween or is it around that period? Uh, or? Well, yeah, sort of, yeah. I mean, there's Method in Our Madness. So we sort of start um, this year. So we start in uh, October, October the 8th, I think we start. And we're going up to sort of, we've got a show in Norwich and then in Sheringham. And then we're going to Southwold, Lowestoft, Bury St Edmunds, Ipswich, Sudbury. So we've got a really lovely tour, actually. And it is around about that time, but we finish mid-November. So we do sort of like it. It's kind of sort of takes in that autumn sort of like spooking season, so to speak. But I've also got another ghost story show that I'm doing at the Mercury Theatre between Christmas and New Year. It's interesting because um, I, I don't know if you remember, Will, um, you're probably too young for this sort of thing. But in, in the good old days, the newspapers used to have around about Christmas and New Year, they always used to have a ghost story you know um in the you know in the nationals that you used to read presumably when you were a bit bored when you you know before you were going back to work you know and before new year you'd read this ghost story so you'd always have a, a ghost story in the national newspaper and so ghost stories were quite popular around about christmas new year but it doesn't just doesn't seem to be around these days so i mentioned to the mercury i said oh i'd really love to do a a, a ghost story an original ghost story based on all the stuff we do, Will, is um, based on East Anglian myths and legends. So we, well, so I've written this ghost story that's based on sort of like an old sort of um, East Anglian myth, and it's going to take place at the Mercury in the Mercury Studio between Christmas and New Year. New Year. It's called the Terror in the Old Library. So yeah. Oh, brilliant! Well, I think yeah. that, that that sounds really fun, and the Mercury's brilliant at um, sort of, I suppose, encouraging. Um, new talent and and local productions, which I think is one of their one of their great um, great strengths. And you won't be short of myths and legends from East Anglia or even no. from local. Have you have you got anything planned around the worming for dragon? Well, I think that might have Sarah Perry might have sort of like um, uh, got the, uh, the the run on me on that one. So obviously with the Essex serpent, but yeah, there's lots. Will I mean you know only the other day I was thinking. Um, about uh, after the uh, after after that football match, well, the, and um, people were sort of going on about the penalty, and uh, it was a soft penalty, and and all the commentators were talking about this the, the penalty being soft, and how we might be a bit fortunate to get into the final. And I was thinking, no other country in the world would this happen, where we'd be slightly guilty about getting into a final that we haven't been into for the last fifty five years, <laughs> and that's our sense of fair play. And our sense of fair play originates back to the Battle of Morden, 991 AD, where 
a certain Brithnorth led the English against Sax uh, against Viking invaders, and because he had the high ground, he decided in his infinite wisdom that that would not be fair. It wouldn't wouldn't be fair to fight the Vikings from the high ground. So he came down on, and this is where we get the the the, the phrase a level playing field. Um, he came down to the the level uh, battleground and promptly got um, obliterated by the Vikings. That's our yeah. fair play for you. Well, fair play, or in that case, perhaps stupidity. The, 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 the Vikings weren't particularly well known for their sense of fair play or kindness. Indeed. And maybe Brithnall should have realised this. But because he was English and because he had a sense of fairness and fair play, you know, he decided that it would be much better to fight them on a limb. Maybe also he thought that, it, you know, if he defeated the Vikings from the high ground, then everyone would say he had an unfair advantage. So maybe it was that as well. So. Yeah, well, quite possibly. So, so, so you, you've, you've talked about um, your, your writing, producing and directing. Now, tell me a bit more about the, uh, the Packing Shed Theatre Theatre Company. Now, let, let's be clear, you're, you are not actually based at the Packing Shed on Mersey Island or just off Mersey Island. But your, your logo, I've had a look at your website, is, is of a Packing Shed, isn't it? Yeah, that's where we, the reason we called the Packing Shed Theatre Company is that's, that was where I, I staged my very first um, uh, show. And it was, um, and I shall, I shall name drop a, a very a good friend of mine, um, Stafford Glover, who's the producer at the Cultural Arts Centre. He organised a music festival on the Packing Shed Island. For all those who don't know, the Packing Shed... It's not Shed, the easiest place to get to, is it? It's No, you can only get there by boat, you know. Yeah. So it's it's essentially, it's on a sort of like a man-made shell, sort of shingle, spit island, sort of sandbank type thing. And it's a shed where they used to pack oysters um, many, many years ago. And it's owned by a trust and you can rent it out for parties. And I think there's been weddings there and, and, and the such like. And, and Stafford organised a music festival and he said... Oh, it's just the most, it's the most amazing sort of atmospheric place. And I thought, oh, if I was going to stage a theatre production on an island, you know, uh, just off of West Mersey, what would it be? And I thought, oh, it'd have to be something like The Tempest. So I wrote a children's sequel to The Tempest and we performed it on the Packingshire Island. We did it twice in a day and we uh, shipped all the cast and crew over there beforehand, set ourselves up. Then we shipped uh, all the audience over, the first audience, then shipped them back and then did another audience in the afternoon. And I wanted to make it immersive. So as soon as the audience got on the, that boat, they were joined by two of the actors and the two actors uh, told them stories of the island and how magical it was. And so as soon as they got on the boat, they were in our world. Um, and then they got on the island and we watched they did watch the show and then we sailed them back again. It was honestly, it was, and then we did this, I was talking about this the other day, we did this in 2013. So I'm thinking that maybe 2023 for our 10 year anniversary, we'll, um, we'll stage another show back on the Packingshed Island. So I haven't decided what it will be yet, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely go back. Well, that's, that certainly sounds very exciting. And you, um, you, 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 you do performances all across uh, cultures. You mentioned the Mercury, and then we'll probably come on and talk about the, the Headgate and others in, in a li little bit. Yeah. But, but you also do performances in our very own Castle Park. Yeah, well, that's kind of what we've done for the, and I say the last couple of years, obviously we didn't do anything last year, but the year before we set up a thing called Castle Park Theatre. And this was uh, in conjunction with uh, uh, Colchester Borough Council. Culture, some of the people of Colchester Borough Council knew that I was starting to sort of uh, do this site-specific theatre. 
Um, and they came to see a couple of shows that I did at Timperley's um, in town, which is awesome. I love Timperley's. It's yeah. such a lovely venue. William Gilbert's uh, house, it's, it's, it's smothered uh, in history. And they've got a lovely garden there. And it's run by the brilliant Charrington family who own and run Leomani Tower. And um, Alice, the daughter there, just said, look, I'd love you to come and do a show here. So we did a couple of shows there. And, and somebody from the council came and saw and said, wow, this is the sort of thing we need in the park. And so we had some conversations. And so that led to 2019's The Gift, uh, which retold the story of Charles Gray um, acquiring uh, Colchester Castle uh, in a kind of odd way. It was a, it was a kind of, um, it was a wedding gift. I don't know if you know the story, Will, that Charles Gray got given uh, Colchester Castle as a, as a wedding gift from his mother-in-law. But the story goes that it was meant to be a sort of albatross around his neck uh, so that it bankrupt him because his mother-in-law didn't, didn't like him and didn't much fancy him marrying her daughter. So, um, so she gave him the castle, but he was quite a, uh, he was quite a, you know, us Essex boys, we're quite, re we're quite resourceful uh, lads. And so Charles Gray um, uh, utilised his connections in London, predominantly uh, his mates that he'd made uh, at the British Museum. He was one of the people who set up the British Museum, Charles Gray. And so he used his friend's friendship and his connections there and restored Colchester Castle to, um, to what we have now. And uh, we stopped, we told that story in 2019. And so this year uh, we are, we're back. Hooray, hooray, we're back in the park, uh, in the shadows of beautiful Colchester Castle. And we are telling the story of the Haywain. It's the 200th anniversary Ooh, of the painting. Constable. Yeah, it's the 200th anniversary of the painting of the Haywain this year. And I really wanted to celebrate it because it's such an iconic image of rural England. And when people, when I talk to people about it who are not from here, actually, even when I talk to people who are from here, they do not realise that the that the Haywain was inspired by a little place called Flatford Mill, which is just up the road from us. And um, it kind of blows their minds. Uh, it blows my minds that they don't know, but it also, you know, blows their minds. And I thought it'd be really important to celebrate that painting in a kind of unique and different way. So we're not telling the story of John Constable uh, and how he came about to paint uh, the Haywain. We're telling the story of the people in the painting, um, you know, the people who are on that Haywain, why they're there and what their lives were like back then. I think that's a lovely idea. And I, I agree that I think Flatford, Flatford Mill is beautiful. And, oh, it's beautiful. Uh, and, and it's National Trust, but you can you can go there and hire, hire little rowing boats and yeah. have, have, have a little lucky. row down the river. Yeah, Stunning. we're very lucky. Yeah, we're very lucky this year, Will, because we, the National Trust, um, who have got their sort of finger on the pulse, um, uh, phoned me up and said, "Oh, we hear you're doing a play about John Constable's The Haywain, and you're doing it in the park." And we said, "Yeah, we're doing it in Colchester Castle Park." They said, "Could we be really cheeky and ask if you could do a little exclusive sort of special preview for us at Flatford Mill?" And and how many seconds do you think it took me to make that decision, Will? You know, Ooh, before... how many milliseconds, probably, <laughs> yeah. I reckon. Yeah, for someone to say, would you like to perform a play inspired by this iconic landscape? You know, um, actually perform it in the place where, you know, where Constable sort of, you know, started painting it. And we think, yes, I absolutely would like to perform the show there. Yeah, so that's going to be exciting. We're doing that on September the 4th. And then the run in the park is from September the 8th to the 18th. 
brilliant. Well, I, I'm going to have to see if I can get along to that because I think that would be, that'll oh, be fantastic. Honestly, I've read the script. It's going to be absolutely awesome. And it's got original music, original folk music. It's just going to be beautiful. Oh, lovely. Now, we're, we're really lucky across culture that we've got some fantastic uh, sort of cultural iconic venues. Now, two of those would be uh, the, the Mercury and the Headgate. Tell me about your, your work with some of our existing theatres like the Mercury and the Headgate. Well, I mean, as you know, Will, I used to be the arts editor for uh, the Colchester Gazette and the Essex County Standard for 20 years. And, uh, you know, predominantly um, when I first started as a journalist, I was really I loved my music, absolutely adored my music. But it was the theatre that really captivated me in terms of, you know, uh, my job at the paper. And um, and it was mainly down to the Headgate and the Mercury. We are so lucky that we have... Um, we have two theatres, and I and I and I treat them equally, Will. I really do, and because some of the best shows I've ever ever seen have been at the Headgate, and I know sometimes it builds itself as the home of amateur theatre in Colchester, but that word amateur definitely, you know, should be thrown out of the window when it comes to the Headgate. Um, I, I saw Waiting for Godot there with. Um, and I'm going to name check them because, and they'll be slightly embarrassed about this, but they are brilliant actors, Will Parrick and James Potter. And, um, and they are amateurs, I suppose, in the sense that they don't get paid to act and that's not their professional job. But in terms of their performances, they were definitely, definitely not amateur. Um, and it was a, a, yeah, Waiting for Godot, an absolute brilliant, brilliant show. And we're lucky to have the Mercury. I mean, um, I had lunch with my, uh, with my lovely wife, my beautiful wife, I should say, um, uh, in uh, the Mercury's new bar and restaurant. On oh, Saturday. it's gorgeous, isn't it? Oh, it's just what Steve Mannix and the team there and Tracy and Dillick and Ryan have done at the Mercury is just we should be we should be forever thankful for what they've done because it is absolutely stunning. Um, and the, the, the legacy that Dee Evans left, you know, in terms of the Mercury Theatre Company, um, and what Ryan is doing, hopefully now, and picking that legacy up. I think we are so lucky to have a nationally, it may possibly even internationally regarded theatre, you know, that's producing its own work of the quality that it produces in our in our lovely town. So close to London as well, you know, the proximity uh, for us to London can sometimes be sort of like, a, you know, a, a blessing and a curse. Um, but to have that kind of, you know, quality of work that we have at the Mercury and also at the Headgate as well. There's some really, that's why I set up Packing Shed. Well, really, you know, I mean, I set it up because I knew that the talent was here. I knew that I could rely on a reservoir of actors and directors and, you know, and creatives, designers, musicians who would, you know, put on sort of top quality work, you know. And, you know, and again, an extension of what I used to do at the newspaper, showcasing great talent, but also telling little known stories um, uh, that are, you know, based here in, in East Anglia. And that's what that's what I'm really passionate about. And to have the support from the Mercury and the Headgate just makes my life, uh, you know, so much easier. So I, I, no, I, would, I would probably dare to even say few people would know the sort of cultural scene in Colchester better than you. So I'd love to pick your brains about okay. the, the, the cultural scene in Colchester, because like many towns over the years, we've we've lost a great deal of old theatre spaces as entertainment has changed and the town centres have changed. And if you think about you know, the Playhouse, if it wasn't a, a Weatherspoons, you know, you sometimes when you're in there and you, you've got a pint in your hand and you look up and you see the 
the auditorium up above behind you, you think, gosh, can you imagine this as a yeah. theatre? Or if Attic wasn't a nightclub, um, the St. George's Hall, uh, Hall, which is behind the, uh, well, today, the co-op bank on the high street, or right, the yeah. Theatre Royal on Queen Street, which I'm, I'm, I'm told Charles Dickens um, either right, attended yeah. or put on yeah. a put on a play there, now a redundant bus depot. And that there were there was even a very small theatre on Mersey Road. I, yeah. I'm just interested to, to sort of sort of to get your thoughts really on on the sort of changing face of theatre. And I know we've got two sort of brilliant theatres remaining, but when you think of what theatre must have been in Colchester to have so many venues, absolutely. I, I do, and I honestly I do believe, and I've spoken uh, about this to a great many people, that I do think that we're on the cusp of something special, and that the uh, and the, the I, I suppose the change in how we shop, you know, the changing face of the high street, you know, certainly um, following, you know, in recent years, you know, with the advent of, you know, of the Internet, but also, you know, how lockdown has affected that as well. And, and this is somebody I mean, I don't know if you know, Will, but I'm, I'm working part time in Red Line Books at the moment. I'm doing three afternoons a week, which really ties in with the theatre. And and I'm passionate about, you know, the high street. And certainly I'm passionate about independent shops. Uh, but, you know, th with all the shops that are closing, the empty spaces, I think, you know, I think it's a sad, it is sad, but I also think this is a great opportunity for us to change the face and the look of the Colchester High Street and the town centre. And maybe go back to, and I'm not suggesting for one moment that there, you know, there is an audience out there that could support, you know, eight, nine however many theatres and sort of like entertainment venues there were back in Victorian times but I certainly think that there's scope for for turning something maybe like Debenhams into a sort of like uh, a big sort of marketplace where upstairs you have a, a performance venue or an entertainment venue you know a bar or a theatre you know um, there there is so much talent in this town that you know that can produce that it, it is fight one of the things is finding the audience. I mean, we've got the Culture Art, let's not forget the Culture Arts Centre. You know, so you've got the Culture Arts Centre, you've got First Sight, you've got the Mercury, you've got Headgate. You know, there, there are four top quality venues that people can go to. But I'm wondering whether that, that sort of change in the way the, the retail, you know, outlets look in, in the town centre and in Colchester, I'm wondering whether there is scope for more venues. Three Wise Monkey as well, you know, they, they, and Coda. So I've noticed that Coda is putting on gigs and Three Wise Monkeys is starting to put on gigs. The Brew House puts on gigs. You know, actually, in, in, you know, when you actually sort of analyse it in minutiae, you kind of go, actually, do you know what? We, we do all right in Colchester. But I do think there's scope for more. I do think that there's enough um, uh, people there's enough bands and also the thing Ben Howard talks about it quite a lot when you know if you build it they will come so it, mm. you know if you have these facilities there you know then then bands sort of come out of the woodwork and go oh there are different places to play a bit like when we had the bull and the sound house you know we had all those other music venues you know that the, there is I think there is enough of a scene, a scene to support that we just need people to come out and you know and enjoy it I think I think that's absolutely right. And and I think one of the things you've sort of demonstrated is that there is an appetite for sort of the, the sort of pop up or more ad hoc uh, theatre spaces. And also, I think there is a, a massive opportunity. And I, I think, you know, I, I wish more town planners and sort of councillors and others would have the vision to think about this, that when we're designing public realm, that actually we design in 
open air performance space as part of that. And, you know, there are places like Castle Park that, that does lend itself perfectly to that. But, well, you know, just that, yeah. with, with seating and other things, you can just design yeah. in outdoor that's, performance yeah. space. I'm rather hoping that that's what Castle Park Theatre will become. The idea will, is, Will, that in years to come, you know, we will have a month long theatre festival in the park. And there will be permanent race seating there. There'll be a bar. There'll be there'll be you know there'll be you know chairs and benches for people to hang out in. There'll be a, a designated area for people to come and enjoy live theatre in the park. And I'm hoping we can extend that. I'm hoping we can extend that from, you know, from you know from May into September. I mean, it is a, a, you know, and and this is a, a phrase that's used ad infinitum, but I think it's so true. Is that the castle? Park is the is the jewel in Colchester's cultural crown, and and uh, although it does very well and people enjoy it, and we have some amazing sort of like events that take place there, um, you know, I, I think that it is underutilized, and that is what we're trying to do with Castle Park Theatre is we're trying to utilize those spaces, those greenings. Part of what we're doing as part of um, the Haywain, so on the middle weekend though last year, and I'm very proud of this, Will. Um, is that we were the only people who organised a theatrical event in lockdown. I mean, it was partial lockdown. It was it was in between sort of like mega lockdown last March and then obviously Christmas. So in, it was about September last year. And outdoor we, as well, I assume. And it was out, of course, yeah, yeah. you could do it indoor. It was called All the Parks a Stage and it was a theatrical treasure hunt. And uh, what people did is uh, people went in bubbles, so they had to, they could only go and enjoy the show in bubbles, but they were taken on a little tour of the park. And at each part of the park, they would meet up with a, a, an actor, and an actor would perform a show for them, a little sort of like 15, 20-minute show, and then they would walk on. And we had about eight show, little mini mini shows that they could go to. I think the Maybe it was it was about 15, 10, 15 minutes, and I think the show itself, when they'd finished the tour around the park, it was about two hours. Wow! And people absolutely loved it. Well, they absolutely adored it. So we're going to do it again this year. So we're going to do, we're going to limit ourselves to Upper Castle Park this year and make it a little bit um, a bit more refined. Uh, and we're going to have sort of like um, specific areas that people can go to. But because we won't have social distancing, it just means that we can do something a little bit more interesting. Bigger, and, better, yes. and special. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people, it's like it will still be have that ethos of a theatrical treasure hunt, and people will still be taken around the park, and they'll maybe go to different parts of the park that they didn't know about before, and they, oh, I didn't know this was in the park, uh, and then they'll be able to enjoy a performance, you know, while they're there. And um, yeah, it's so we're doing that on the middle Sunday. So um, yeah, I think that might be the twelfth, September the twelfth. And so that all the parks are stage, it's called. So that's part of Castle Park Theatre. But that's that's the idea of Castle Park Theatre. It's going to grow year on year. It's going to grow. We'll have a spoken word event. We'll have, you know, we'll have stand up comedy because we've got some really great local comedians here, you know, and we just want to sort of grow it. And obviously me working at the, the bookshop now, maybe we'll have some sort of I don't want to tread too much on Ros Green's Essex Book Festival vibe. But maybe we can have some sort of author events. You know, you know, the world is our oyster, I think. So uh, we're quite ambitious about what we can do with it, I think. But um, with the council support and with the Mercury and the Arts Centre and all the other people who are supporting us, I think we can really make it work. I, I, I think it sounds really exciting. And I think you yeah. can... Um... You, you you can hear the passion uh, that, that's flowing that uh, the sort of flowing through you for for all all of this and yeah. and, and that's clear clearly what drives you but but in, 
no, I know a little secret um, that, that actually that that although this is a huge passion of yours, it wasn't your first career choice, was it? Well, I've had many careers. I mean, I in, certainly in recent years. I mean, um, you know, teach. I mean, I've, I've so in recent years I've been teacher training. So in lockdown, I trained to be a, a secondary school English teacher. So I'm now a qualified English secondary school teacher. I'm working in Redline Books, so I'm a bookseller. I'm a theatre producer. Obviously, I was the arts editor uh, for the Gazette. But are you talking about something else, Will? What are you talking uh, well, about? I, well, I am because because I think we ha we have a, a shared have, a shared we, qualification we and profession. We do have a shared. We do have a shared. Although, although you although you worked for one of the top firms in the country. Fleetingly, Will. Fleetingly, yeah. So I was uh, yeah. So I worked. So I was uh, yeah. I was a lawyer for. Um, so I qualified and then I, I gave it up within about sort of six months to come back to Wivenhoe to write a book, as you do. Um, but yeah, I worked for a company. Am I allowed to mention them, Will? Am I yeah, of course you can. Yeah, course yeah can. so um, Eversheds. I worked for Eversheds in the city of London. I was in, I was in banking litigation, Will. So imagine, imagine giving up banking litigation to... To uh, to write to write a book. How how could you give up such an exciting and thrilling career? It's um, funny because for, for um, something so non-creative and boring. I, I know absolutely. It's funny because the 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 lovely news editor and she's still there. Bless her concept, Wendy Brading at the Colchester Gazette, Nessie's County Standard. She was convinced that I'd been struck off for some nefarious reason. Um, and that's the only reason that could explain why I would give up the copious amounts of money that I would now be earning as possibly a, 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 an equity partner in Evershed to, uh, to become a journalist and then, you know, and then a theatre maker. So she, she couldn't really, she couldn't really sort of get it into her head. She's like, oh, what, what? Hang on a minute. What? Really? No, you must have been struck off. Something happened. That's the only reason that could explain it. So you, you mentioned Wendy, and she she is an absolute star and stalwart of the Gazette and Essex County Standard, and you 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 speak very fondly of your your time as a features writer on the the, the Gazette. But what what was that like? Because sort of based on your age, I'm not going to go into that too much. But where you know that you were there in the days before uh, email was mass used, certainly before the rise of social media. Uh, things like audience fragmentation, uh, fragmentation, and a complete shift in the way that media and and uh, sort of creatives are consumed. Uh, there's been there must have just been a huge shift in your period covering uh, yeah. this this sort of sphere um, in the in the paper. Yeah, and it's, it's, what, what's it's, that been like? It's been well, it's been really sad actually, if the truth be told. I mean, when I first started out, I was in fact I was having this conversation the other day about how many reporters were there. So I think there, when I started, there was about fourteen reporters. You know, the circulation was around about thirty-five thousand. Um, there was a features team, so there was six of us in the features department. You know, and it was, it was an amazing time. It was brilliant. It was really great. You felt like you were, you, you were, you were an important integral. And I would still say that the Gazette and the County Standard is an important integral part of the town. But back then, you really were. You know, and. Um, it, it was it was it was a it was a wonderful wonderful job to have and then slowly gradually um, because the industry is still struggling to work out how to monetize what they do in a way that they you know because obviously circulation has fallen ad revenues have fallen um, and it just means that they just don't have the sort of like the money that they used to have and it, it's a really 
I still think I personally still think that there is a market for a you know um, a locally based sort of like um, organization that can do what we we do and do it really really well and still make some money out of it um, uh, but increasingly you know with the internet and everything else that's going on it's 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 a tough it's tough for for being journalists and i uh, towards yeah. the end of my career i was going into i was going into colleges and universities and talking about journalism and half of me was going it's the best job in the world i love it it's brilliant you get to do this you get to write first of all writing you know you get paid to write will i mean imagine that and when you talk to young people about writing and who love writing so young people who love writing and you go yeah there, there are jobs out there where you can get paid to go to the olympics and meet famous sports people write about it and you get paid a really good wage and and it would like they go oh, it'd be like a dream and i go god some of the things that i've done you know some of the people that i've met some of the you know the gigs that i've been to you know have just I was out with um, uh, my son, uh, w w it was in an indie rock band called Sandcastle Jesus, uh, who are very good, check them out, Sandcastle Jesus, very good, and um, I was talking to the lead singer about how I, I went to, but I was backstage at the Brixton Academy, and I, and, um, I was buying a drink for me and Dominic Bowers, uh, who was also um, the editor at the Gazette at one time, editor of the Gazette. And um, uh, Alex Turner of the Arctic Monkeys came up and we just sort of chatted to him and bought him a drink. And this young man, uh, a friend of my son's, you know, 18, he just looked at me. His m mouth was wide open. It's like, wow, you had a drink with Alex Turner from the Arctic Monkeys. And I went, yeah, yeah, I did. It's kind of bizarre, but it was a, it was a brilliant, brilliant job. But as you say, over the years, the industry has massively, massively changed. So I tried to... I've tried to reinvent myself, Will, and, and try and continue that ethos that I believe in, which is showcasing the local talent, you know, shouting about everything that's brilliant in Colchester, you know, telling stories. So I'm still telling stories and I'm still showcasing, you know, everything that's brilliant about our town and the people who live here. Uh, just I'm just doing it through the theatre company instead of the newspaper. I, well, I, I think yeah, I think that's a sort of sort of brilliant attitude to take and I mean you're right I mean things have changed so much with with media and you know now you've got celebrities and politicians that have you know Twitter and, and Facebook pages with many many times the the reach of uh, the circulation of of local papers so they've they've had to change and you know un unfortunately I'm not going to be overly uh, critical of uh, the the Gazette but uh, as a result to sort of try and stay current because as you say they've reduced the number of journalists which then affects what they write and what they can write about and how creative they can be and then then they reduce the photographers and therefore the picture qualities fall and and then then to try and keep up with with uh, sort of circulation or keep it up they they try to they try to be a bit more like red tops and go a bit sort of sensationalist and negative exactly. and that's just really sad because you're what, what i love about what you do you're talking up the town it's positivity and that's what that's what i think people really want to read about i know that that those negative front pages might sell papers but actually we want to be talking up the town and saying all the great things that are happening here um not just the odd you know the giving too much coverage to the odd thing which which doesn't go you know, yeah, quite well or is, is pretty bad is, you know and it's that clickbait thing and a lot of yeah. online and digital and you know what are people going to click on and i absolutely 
and when you when you have that sort of short, sharp, um, shocking sort of like clickbait, you know, to get people, you know, to your website, you know, you lose the the you know the in depth, which is what we used to do, the in depth, you know, the the precise sort of like you know coverage that we used to give, you know, where where we've really sort of we'd be fair and we'd we delve we delve into the sort of you know the the real people of culture. I mean, I was look to be fair. I was lucky, you know, a lot of my colleagues used to call me a fluffy journalist and to a certain extent they were right. I, I used to get the, you know, I used to get to do all the positive stories. I used to interview lots of incredibly local people, Charles Debenham, the local artist who I've interviewed at, you know, the times I've spent with him and, you know, and, you know, I used to be able to sort of really take my time and, and write, you know, a, do a lovely in-depth interview and write about them and really carve it out so that people really hopefully got to the essence and increasingly towards the end of my tenure at the, the, the Gazette because of the time that I had I wasn't able to do that and that's what you've lost you've lost the time you've lost the sort of professionalism um, uh, that you get with time the, don't get me wrong the, the, the journalists that they have there are still absolutely incredible they just don't have the time to be able to um, to to do their profession justice, if you know what I mean. Just yeah, I, I totally there. do. No, no, I I I, I completely I completely agree with you. You 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 you've um you you did a, a fair bit of name dropping there in terms of sort of people that you've you've interviewed. You, oh, yeah. I, I can't let you go without telling us some secrets about some of the folk that you've interviewed over the years. You know, who was the best? Who was the most fun? Who was the toughest? Because, you know, you mentioned a few names, but I, I know from from some of the sort of um, articles and features that I've read that you've interviewed Molly Murs, Blur, yeah. Dermot yeah. O'Leary, yeah. David Yates, who directed Harry Potter. Well, you... David Yates was one of my favorite. Well, so first of all, Dermot O'Leary, I went to college with Dermot O'Leary. I've got a funny story about Dermot O'Leary. So I, I used to tell my kids that I was friends with Dermot O'Leary. Friends may be stretching it a little bit. We went to college together. He knows me, I know him. Um, but um, my kids didn't believe me. They said, oh, you don't know Dermot O'Leary, you, you know. And so we were at the Latitude Festival once and um, and I was walking uh, uh, with my family and there, there was a guy walking with a group of people and he had this sort of flat cap on and he, he kind of had it downwards so people couldn't see who he was. And I was thinking, look, if you don't, look, mate, if you don't want to know, you know, if you don't want people to know who you are, then don't have this flat cap over your face because it's obvious you're trying to hide yourself. And then as I walked past, he kind of turned around, the guy in the flat cap turned around and went, hey, Neil. And I turned around, it was Dermot O'Leary. And my kids, honestly, they just looked at me and went, oh my God, you do know Dermot O'Leary. It was the greatest, and I shall be forever thankful for Dermot for that, because it was the greatest moment of my fatherhood where I proved to my kids that I did actually know Dermot O'Leary. But Ollie Mers is lovely. David Yates was one of my favourite interviews. Um, I interviewed him because he got an honorary degree at Essex University. And his partner's uh, wife, I'm not exactly sure he's married, uh, is actually Theo Walcott's aunt, and she was adorable, lovely. And he's quite a quiet man doesn't really like to say a lot and at the end of the interview she came up to me and she said she said oh and she called me young man which was great as well because you know I, I wasn't particularly young at the time she said young man can I just say you know you have got more out of David than uh, than most of the journalists on the national newspapers who have interviewed him over the years and I just went oh thank you very much he was lovely really lovely and blur well I've interviewed all of the well when i talk about blur obviously i've interviewed the three main blur people who are obviously the three people who've come from colchester so that's damon 
uh, Graham and Dave Rowntree. And Damon, uh, Damon's brilliant, actually. I really like Damon. Um, he He's had a little bit of a sort of um, a, um, a sketchy relationship with his hometown because he kind of grew up in Leytonstone and then he came to Colchester when he, I think he was about 12 or 13. And I think he had trouble adjusting to life in Colchester. And... Um, but I think he still regards it as his hometown. And obviously his parents lived here for, for many years and stayed here after he went back to London. And I interviewed him uh, twice. Yeah, once. Uh, the first time I interviewed him, his agent said he'll never, he doesn't really like, he says, he doesn't really like talking to the local newspaper. And he doesn't, it was about when Colchester were playing Chelsea in the FA Cup. And my news editor said, oh, get Damon Albarn. He's a Chelsea fan. He's from Colchester. And I said, look, he'll never, he doesn't kind of speak to us anyway. Um, and um, so I phoned his agent up and his agent said, well, he doesn't really like speaking to you guys. Um, and he definitely doesn't speak to anybody about the football. And then 10 minutes later, she phoned me back. She goes, I can't believe I'm saying this, but Damon will give you 10 minutes to talk about the football. And I went, ah, oh. and it was really lovely. He was so lovely and so sweet. And people in the newsroom were going, oh, my God, how is Damon Albarn talking to you? I said, I've no idea, but he was. And then the second time was when his... Uh, his debut solo album came out and he was really very lovely, talked very fondly about the town. It was a lovely uh, album, Everyday Robots, and there was a lot in there. Very nostalgic, very whimsical. Um, and uh, yeah, he was lovely, really lovely. And um, yeah, so the Blur Boys have always been really, really nice. There have been some there have been some rotters. I don't know whether I should mention them. Shall I mention them, Will? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so uh, um, there were, uh, oh god, I feel terrible about mentioning this because um, I said I did say to him that I would. So uh, there's a stand-up comedian um, who uh, appears on uh, Eight Out of Ten Cats. Uh, um, uh, I'm going to tell you, it's, it was um, Sean Locke. And he was just really horrible. He was really horrible and really grumpy and just really. And he said something about nurses. And I said, oh, yeah, that's very funny, Sean. And he goes, no, I'm not joking. You know, I think he said something like stand up comedians work harder than nurses. And um, and I and I kind of went, oh, my wife's a nurse. And he kind of laughed it off. And I went, no, really, she's a nurse. And he's going, oh, well, blah, blah, blah. and he was just really grumpy. And then he had to phone me up the next day and apologize. He's a his agent, uh, well, the PR who set the interview up, she phoned me up. She said, "Ooh, how was your interview with Sean? And I said, well, actually, really, just I really like Sean Locke and I really liked his um, his work. And I was really, really excited about interviewing him. And, you know, when they talk about don't meet your heroes, that was a don't meet your hero moment um, where, you know, where it's like, oh, that's really disappointing. And um, yeah, so he was really grumpy. He had to phone me up the next day and apologize. Um, and who's the guy? There was a guy from EastEnders whose name escapes me. Um, what what uh, what part did he play? Do you remember? Oh, he played. Oh, was he uh, this Italian uh, character Gino? Someone maybe. Yes. Yeah, I know the one. Tall, dark haired. Yeah, yeah, he had a yeah, kind of goatee yeah. beard. That's it. And it, yeah. he was appearing at the Mercury, and um, and I asked him one question about EastEnders. One question. And he said. He said. Oh, and he sighed. He went. Oh. He goes. Here we go. He says, this interview's not going to be all about EastEnders, is it? And I said, oh, look, I'm not being funny. I've literally asked you one question about EastEnders. And also, I'm not being funny. That's why you are, you know, at the Mercury. And also, I'm not being funny, but it's got your name and EastEnders underneath your name. So, you know, I think we might have to talk about EastEnders a little bit. 
He was like, he was really <laughs> grumpy about it. But a lot of soap stars are like that. I found, cause, you know, um, some soap stars, when they um, when they sort of like uh, come out of soaps, they uh, yeah, they just don't want to talk about what's made them famous, which seems kind of ridiculous to me. You yeah. Know, they kind of go, oh, I'm doing serious theatre now. And I was like, mm, yeah, but you've still got EastEnders under your name on the poster. So, uh, yeah, but mainly, mainly lovely people, mainly lots of really, really. So Tom Courtney, the actor, wasn't very nice. He, um, yeah, I, I cut him off uh, midway through because he was so rude. I said, I know you're a knight of the realm and I know you're an absolute brilliant actor and I'm a great admirer of your work, but I'm not going to be spoken to like that. <laughs> Goodbye. So I cut off Sir Tom Courtney. Yeah. And um, we didn't run his interview. The Mercury phoned me up and said we could really do with that interview running with Sir Tom Courtney because he hasn't sold enough tickets. And I said, yeah, well, I'm not running it because <laughs> I basically cut off the interview halfway through because he was so rude. But there you go. Oh dear, yeah. It's always disappointing. Well, I mean, sometimes like I can sort of, you can empathise a little bit when you sort of have these A-list stars and they they have you know no disrespect to you know and what you were doing, but you they maybe had twenty, thirty, forty people all asking them similar questions in a row in a hotel room and you sort of busy that. But but when it's when it's you know local and it's the Mercury and you're you're trying to help plug the show that they're in, which it's like come on, you know. But some of the some of the A-listers have been some of the nicest people. Nigella Lawson was just, you know, she's proper A-lister. She is, and I was I'm pleased proper, to hear that because I love I, Nigella. Oh yeah, she was proper. Like I was proper swooning over, and she was so sweet. And in the end, she like, she did this wonderful thing where where she said, she said, oh, you know, you've got young children and everything, and um, and this was back in the day when I had young children. They're all grown up now. And she said, oh, I'll send you some of my earlier cookbooks. And I thought, oh, that's very lovely. And never thought anything of it. Just thought it was a fleeting thing that she said at the end of her interview. Honestly, two days later, I had this massive great big parcel, like about four or five of her old cookery books that she'd sent me. And it was just, she was so, so lovely. Really. And yeah, some, and um, Helen Mirren, Dame Helen Mirren, when she was getting her honorary degree at Essex University, um, and I was really so there was a, another journalist there and she kept us waiting um, because she was doing lots of uh, stuff. And she came in and she apologized for keeping us waiting. And then she sat down and I sat down next to her and sort of had a little chat with her. And then the, the other journalist had a chat with her. And I, I wrote this sort of like a, this glowing sort of like, you know, interview with her because she was amazing and lovely. And she's an icon and she's a legend. And this other journalist who was writing for some magazine up in sort of like an East Anglian-based magazine um, just really slated her and and slated me at the same time, Will, said that I was a young sort of, you know, whippersnapper journalist. I wasn't young, but bless him for thinking that. Um, and that I'd, I'd, been, I'd been captivated by her charms. And because I'd been captivated by her charms, I then wrote a sort of like a, a sort of like a, a swooning piece that I shouldn't have written because she kept us waiting and you know but she was lovely I, I thought wow how could you you know and that's the that's the sort of the the old school hack journalist who thought oh I'll make a story out of this but that's unfortunate thinking, because on the flip side of that you know these yeah. these celebrities are not there to see you the journalist they're there to do a job as in well, they she, were there to visit the university right and get their degree to, yeah she was there so, yeah so, absolutely so if anything if she cut them short that would have been worse absolutely will yeah she was absolutely yeah and i just thought that that was the that's the the the, the dark side or the bad side of journalists when they 
try and create a story out of nothing. There was a, there was no story there, and I nearly I nearly phoned the guy up and said said actually that is not what happened. And also, you know, you know why why have you why have you even mentioned me? You know, in your thing, surely there's some sort of journalistic etiquette where you don't sort of slag off other sort of writers slash journalists. But you know, well, you'd have thought so, wouldn't you? you I, would have I must I adore your um, Dermot O'Leary story and the, the and the kids. I oh. I've, I had this vision. I don't. If you, did you ever did you ever watch Alan Partridge? Yes. Where where he, he do you remember he was kept talking about Dan at the golf club and then he Dan he's, he's in the car park and he's like Dan Dan. Dan. Yes. I have that vision of sort of you spotting Dermot and then shouting Dermot and him not responding and your kids go ah, I told you so. So how brilliant that he actually proactively you know, spotted you and then uh, shouted was, your name. And I have to say, Will, that is the sort of thing that I would do you know what i would go damn it damn it and my kids would have made fun my it, it doesn't take much for my kids to make fun of me so it was, <laughs> was one of those lovely moments in my life where i just went aha i told you so and they were speechless they were all speechless for once and they looked at dad in a sort of new sort of like you know so I will be forever grateful for for Dermot for that for uh, you know for elevating me to sort of you know kudos status. So, I love uh, it. I love it. You yeah. you've, you know, you've been really generous with your time. So I've just got one more question for you. Yeah. And that's that you you've made Colchester your place, your home. You're you bringing up your uh, young, uh, which are, they still are. They're still a young family. What what is it about Colchester which keeps uh, you happy to be here? Oh. Well, where where can you start? Um, it's just at the pe- first of all, it's the people. The people who live here generally are gorgeous, lovely, amazing people, and we have quite. I've always said it's quite an eclectic town, you know, made up of those people who, you know, those Eastenders who came out here, you know, to to bring up their families, um, you know, that the country set, you know, those sort of like, you know, that the you know the people who've lived there for. For all their lives, I, I was in, in when I was teaching in school. I was going on about how my wife's um, dad calls Tuesday Tuesday and computer, um, you know. And you've got the army, you've got the academia, you know. It's a it's a lovely melting pot, a rich melting pot of you know uh, of people. I think we have the outside of Manchester and London. We have the biggest Chinese community in the whole country. I read somewhere. So we have this big, massive melting pot of lovely people in this town, um, which I think m- makes it. And then we have, obviously, we have the history. You know, we have some of the most beautiful surrounding countryside in all of England. And I know people go, oh, what about the Lake Tristing? And what about Wales? And it's there's no it's 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 no surprise that the majority of nature travel, you know, nature writers and what, what we call wild writers are all based in East Anglia. People like Robert McFarlane, Richard Maybe. Ronnie Blythe, James Canton, who are writing about the beautiful countryside. You know, Chris Packham cites one of his heroes as J.A. Baker, who wrote a book called The Peregrine, uh, which is based on uh, this civil servant who lived in Chelmsford, and he wrote about two, uh, two nesting peregrine falcons. And it's it's an absolute classic, and Chris Packham always cites this book as one of his sort of books that he loves. Um, and, um, and they're all based in the East. It's because, you you, you know... We don't have mountains and lakes that are that are right up in your face. You have to go look for the beauty, uh, the countryside. But it's there. It's absolutely there. I did a walk around the Denji Peninsula um, only uh, about two or three months ago. And it's the first time I'd done that walk from Malden right the way round to the whole walk, right the way round to Burnham and Crouch. And it is stunning. It's desolate and it's beautiful and it's magnificent. So it's a, like, it's a lots of different things, I think. 
Will, you know, it's the it's the people who live here. It's the you know it's the it's the resources. It's the history. It's the surrounding countryside. It's just why would you want to live anywhere else? Neil, on that positive message, uh, <laughs> I think I'll say thank you very much for your time. It's been lovely speaking with you. Lovely and I'm very you. much looking forward to your show in Castle Park. Yes, come and see the Hay Wayne, everyone. Yeah, it's going to be absolutely stunning and brilliant and a really interesting way of looking at an iconic uh, image of our beautiful countryside. Well, I wish you every success with it. Thanks, Will. Take care.